that. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and grab it and open to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We are kicking off a brand new series today called Marked, and we're going to read a few foundational verses as Jesus is calling his disciples, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dig into what this series is about and what God wants to do in it. So in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 18, it says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So he walks by, he sees these two guys out catching some fish, and Jesus says these words that I believe he says to us today. He says, come, follow me. I love verse 20. It says, at once. Everybody say, at once. It says, at once they left their nets and followed him. As soon as Jesus gives the call, they immediately respond. It goes on in verse 21. It says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. So they were also fishermen. They were getting their nets ready to go out and make a catch. And Jesus called them, and verse 22 says, and immediately, everybody say immediately. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the call of discipleship. God, we thank you that you have marked us As your believers, with the promise of the Holy Spirit, those who have given their life to you, you say you've sealed us with your spirit, God. And so you've empowered us to live for you, to be like Jesus, to follow in Jesus' footsteps. So we pray today we would be able to take the step in that direction, God, that you would enlighten us as to what it means to be a disciple and increase the urgency in our hearts to follow Jesus and who he is and what he has done. We thank you for all you're going to do in this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen, amen. So most of us, if you have been a believer in Jesus for any length of time, you are familiar with this idea of being a disciple. You know that this is part of the deal. It's part of the expectation that we didn't just get fire insurance when we came to Jesus, but we actually signed up for something, amen, to be his followers. So what does that really mean? What does that look like? Well, over the next four weeks through this series we're calling Marked, we're going to dig into that. We're going to go back 2,000 years into scripture and see what happened when Jesus called his original disciples. What did it mean for them then? What was a disciple supposed to do and supposed to be like? And then we're going to fast forward to millennia, back to today, and we're going to see what that looks like in our context. Because obviously, you and I being a disciple of Jesus looks a little bit different than Peter and James and John being a disciple of Jesus. The context is very different, but there are some principles of discipleship that transcend time, that transcend geography, that transcend language, and all the differences between where they were and what goes on in our lives. There are some principles that we can apply and should apply today. And so we're going to dig in to those principles and see what it means to be a follower of Jesus. First, I want us to see what is going on in Jesus' life as he begins recruiting disciples. And we pick up the story here in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is around 30 years old, uh, and Jesus has spent the first 30 years of his life in relative anonymity. 
he, he has not operated in the supernatural. He has not performed any of the miracles that we're all so familiar with. Uh, he's been grown up in a little village in an area called Galilee. Galilee is the northern region of Israel. So there's three re- regions in ancient Israel. There's Galilee in the north, Samaria in the central, and Judea in the south. And ancient Israel was kind of the inverse of the United States geographically. So the northern region was where they had what they considered kind of their hicks, kind of their country folks, kind of the people that were looked down upon sometimes by people from other regions. And yet, it's where Jesus comes from, and it's where most of his disciples come from. And I think that's pretty cool for us as people in Mississippi. If you look at the lists of all the lists of states, when you want to be at the top, Mississippi's at the bottom of most of them. And when you want to be at the bottom, Mississippi's at the top of most of them. And yet 1 Corinthians says this, and I think it defines so much of who Jesus is and how he operates. It says that God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, And God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And so Jesus went not to the educated in Judea. He went to the uneducated in Galilee and said, I want you to follow me. I want you to represent me. You may not be wealthy. You might have a blue-collar job. You may not have all the educational training. But there's something in you that I believe I can use for my glory. And that's good news for us as Mississippians. Amen? And so Jesus starts recruiting. And so he, he grows up in Nazareth. And the first thing that he does at 30 years old when he's about to begin his earthly ministry is he goes down to the Jordan River and he looks for his cousin, John the Baptist. And he tells John, I need you to baptize me. Now, Jesus didn't need to be baptized, right? Jesus didn't need to be saved. He had no sins to be saved from. He was the son of God and he walked in a level of purity and righteousness and holiness that none of us will ever attain. Right? He was the only perfect sacrifice for our sin. Yet he chose to get baptized because he wanted to demonstrate for us, hey, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I haven't done myself. And so he gets baptized, and as he's baptized, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And so God fills him with his Holy Spirit, and from that point forward, now Jesus starts doing incredible miracles. Right, All the stories that we read about, all the things that we associate, walking on water and healing lepers and feeding 5,000 and raising people from the dead and calming storms, all these things we know of Jesus does over the next three and a half years, but he doesn't do them in his power, he does them through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the book of Romans tells us that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me. Right? So he's trying to teach us something. He's letting us know, hey, this isn't just for me. I'm modeling these things for you. So Jesus gets baptized, and after he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, he does something seemingly crazy. He goes out into the wilderness, and he fasts for 40 days. How many of you know if that was how we recruited people to follow Jesus today? Come follow Jesus, get baptized, get filled with the Spirit, and then go fast for 40 days. There'd be a lot less people that call themselves Christians, right? There'd be a whole lot less of us signing up for that. Thankfully, Jesus didn't ask us to do that First thing when we get saved, he does ask us to fast and to pray, Uh, but he doesn't ask us to do it first. He gives us a little time to build up our spiritual strength before he asks us that. So he goes out into the wilderness, and he's tempted by Satan, and he defeats that temptation, as you know, by speaking out the word of God. And then Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes and he appears in the synagogue, and he reads from the scrolls from the book of Isaiah, confirming that he is the Messiah, letting everybody know, hey, I'm here, and it's time. And then he goes back to Capernaum. Capernaum is a town in Galilee on the Sea of Galilee. 
And then he starts recruiting. It's time to get started with ministry. It's time for me to build my team. And in this day and age, there were a number of rabbis, a number of teachers who had disciples. But Jesus went opposite the way that most of them went. When there was a disciple or a rabbi, the way that you told the rabbi you want to disciple under them, you want to be their student, you want to sit at their feet and learn from them, is you would literally follow them. This is so incredibly awkward. I encourage you to try it to somebody at Walmart next time you're out. Uh, just start walking the way that they walk, where they walk. Just get right behind them. It's amazing to me. I wish I could see this actually happen. Uh, but that's not the way our culture works. Uh, that's how they did it, is you chose the one you wanted to follow. But Jesus flips it. He said, no, I'm not going to let just people choose me. I'm going to choose you. And so Jesus goes out and he starts calling to these Fishermen who may not even know the ways of the rabbis, because these were mostly the educated, elite, privileged people who participated in such things. He says, I want you to follow me. And he starts building his team. And that's where we find him at the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus sees Peter and his brother Andrew, and he says, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. The more common translation says, I will make you fishers of men, right? He says, yeah, catching fish is pretty cool. It's pretty powerful. It's what you know. It's their identity. He says, I'm going to have you fish for something even greater. In other words, very early on in the discipleship process, Jesus lets them know, I'm sending you after people. You've got a responsibility. This isn't just for you, but I'm going to empower you to help others know who I am. And it says at once, they left their nets and they followed him. I think that's so incredible that they obeyed immediately. And he encounters James and his brother John, and he does the same thing, and he calls them to him, and it says they immediately left their nets, left their boats, left even their father Zebedee, who they worked for, and they went out to follow Jesus. Here's one thing that I see all throughout scripture. We see this with Abraham where God calls him and it says early the next morning he's going to go out and do what God tells him to do. We see this with, with Joseph in the Christmas story. The angel of the Lord will appear to Joseph in a dream and the very first thing he does when he wakes up is he goes out and he obeys. And what we see scripturally is that obedience is instantaneous. I'm a big believer that delayed o- obedience is actually a form of disobedience. Now, that doesn't mean that, hey, if you've waited, that, well, I already missed it, so I don't need to do that. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, But it does mean I need to repent. If God's called you to something, if God's told you to do something and you've been putting it off, God, I'm sorry I waited. Let's go. Let's respond. Let's get on it. God is a God of action. He's a God of, of getting some stuff happening. And so he calls these four disciples in Matthew chapter 4, and as you know, he builds the team all the way up to 12, he says, man, come and follow me. So what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, the word disciple in Greek is actually the word methetes. Everybody say methetes. Methetes, it means literally learner or pupil. So if you are being recruited to be a disciple, you are being asked to come and learn. Come sit under me, be my pupil. The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament defines disciple this way. A disciple is a follower of someone in the sense of adhering to the teachings or instructions of a leader and in promoting the cause of such a leader. I like that definition. So not only do we listen to what Jesus has to say and adhere to what Jesus has to say, but we're actually called to promote his cause. 
right? We are called to represent him. We are called to stand out to the culture, to the world, as, man, Jesus has something for you. There's a a teacher named Dallas Willard, and I love how Dallas Willard defined this. He says, as Jesus' disciple, I am his apprentice in the kingdom living. I am learning with him how to lead my life in the kingdom of the heavens as he would lead my life if he were I. In other words, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, when I was in high school, which I won't tell you how long ago that was, longer than I'd like to admit, we had this little trend called, what would Jesus do? Had these bracelets, WWJD, right? Bracelets and necklaces and this whole brand of clothing. And somebody made a whole bunch of money off of this. Uh, But the message was powerful, right? Is this reminder, hey, what would Jesus do? And that trend has faded out, and I think in some ways that's a good thing because there was a whole lot of people rolling around with WWJD bracelets that were not doing what Jesus would do. Um, but as a disciple, it's getting into that mindset. How would I actually approach this instead of just how would, should I deal with this relationship? How should I handle this problem? How should I work with my kids? What would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus treat this person? How would Jesus walk in generosity towards this individual? How would Jesus speak to this person who irritated him or who angered him, to this coworker who gets on his nerves, right? How would Jesus handle traffic on Goodman Road, right? The, these are the things that a disciple gets into this mindset. And I love that Dallas Willard, he, he used this word apprentice, that a disciple is like an apprentice, because I spent a year of my life where apprentice was my job title uh, at Church on the Move in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And as an apprentice, our job was to sit under the staff member above us and learn as much as we could about how they did things, how they did ministry, how they operated in, in any environment, and our job was to do what they would do. Man, if, if you're leading people, if you're talking to people, if you're working with students, it was a youth ministry position. Man, you want to do my job, my, I apprenticed under a guy named Kip Lawson. So my job was, man, think like Pastor Kip. What would Pastor Kip do in this situation? And I've never thought of discipleship like that, but I love that mindset, that I'm actually getting into Jesus' mindset. Here's the good news. The book of 1 Corinthians says that we have the mind of Christ. We don't have to guess. We, we don't have to hope. Man, what would Jesus do in this situation? The Bible says that God actually gives us access to his mind. And now I have to tap into that because I also have Troy's mind, right? And Troy's mind is often louder and more obnoxious and more immediate than the mind of Christ is. So I've got to get out of my head and into his mindset, but I've been given that mindset and given access to what he thinks. So that's what it means to be his Disciple. Being a follower, disciple, or apprentice of Jesus means to practice the way of Jesus in three major purposes and aspects of life. And these are the three things that we're going to build today as a foundation. I'm going to give you the three, and then we're going to go back through each of them and teach on them. So this is what it means to be a disciple. It means, number one, being with God. Number two, it means becoming like Jesus. And if you're going to be a disciple of God, number three, it means doing what Jesus did. We can distill all the scriptures about discipleship, all the principles of discipleship, everything Jesus asked of his disciples down to these three basic things. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, he's asking you to be with God, he's asking you to become like Jesus, and he's asking you to do the things that Jesus did. So let's work through them together. The first attribute of following Jesus and discipleship is being with 
God. This one's awesome. This one's great. We just finished up this series last week. We talked about the fourth cup of the Passover meal, the cedar meal, and, and that, man, God has actually invited us into relationship with him. That he didn't just save us from slavery, which would be more than enough, but he actually saved us to himself. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He's designed this thing to work with relationship. Here's what I think. I think when Jesus went out and he recruited disciples, I don't think they had any idea that it meant that they were going to become like Jesus. I don't think they had any concept that it meant that they were going to do the things that Jesus did. I don't think that was the reason why they signed up. I think when Jesus looked at Peter and Andrew, when he looked at James and John, and he said, come follow me, the reason why they could immediately abandon their job, their, their, what's the word I'm looking for? Security, their financial security, right? Their identity, their family business in James and John's sake, right? The reason they could walk away from all that in an instant was because they knew that when Jesus said, come follow me, they're like, I just got to be with that guy. They didn't necessarily know he was the Messiah yet. They didn't necessarily understand everything about who he was or what his mission was. That stuff was going to come later. But there was something in them. When Jesus said, follow me, they said, I got to go. I got to be with him. They immediately at once dropped everything. Why? Well, in our culture of Christianity, we have this phrase that there's a God-shaped hole inside of every one of us, right? I would actually tweak that slightly and say there's a Jesus-sized hole inside of every one of us. That God has built into your DNA a desire for the Messiah. That he's built into you a, a, an empty spot that only Jesus can fill. Only he can bring peace there. Only he can bring fulfillment there. Only he can bring satisfaction there. Only he can bring purpose there. And so when Jesus looks at, at Peter and Andrew and says, come follow me, and they've lived their whole lives to be fishermen, they've studied their whole lives to be fishermen, this is all that they've ever wanted to be, they immediately walk away from everything that's comfortable, from everything that's familiar, from everything that brings security, and they walk away from that because there's something about Jesus. Isn't it amazing that Jesus asks us to come be with him? And when you think about the creator of the world, the one who spoke all of this into existence, the one who, who sits on the throne over 7 billion people on planet Earth, and he looks down and he says, Troy, I want to be with you. How humbling can that be? Because here's what's crazy about it. Not only does he want to be with me, he even knows all my junk. He knows all my weakness. He knows all my failures. He knows all the stuff that nobody knows that's in me. And yet, despite all that, he says, hey, I want to be with you. And he looks at you, despite all of your junk and all of your failures and all of your struggles and all of your mistakes and all of your secrets and all of your skeletons and all that stuff. And he says, I want to be with you. Regina, I want to be with you. Barrett, I want to be with you. Sheila, I want to be with you, right? He says, I want to be with you. This should be enough. It should be enough that each of us, there should be something inside of each and every one of us that leaps at the idea that Jesus would say, come follow me. Come follow me because I want to be with you and I want you to be with me. In Mark chapter 3, it says Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. 
See, the other, other gospels dig into the specifics of different callings, and this is how he called Matthew, and this is how he called Peter and Andrew, and this is how he called James and John, and this is how he called Bartholomew. Mark doesn't have time for all that. Mark is the man of action. Mark doesn't have time for conversation. His gospel is the shortest. If you want to read through the story of Jesus the quickest, read the book of Mark. Uh, and you're going to read a whole lot of stuff that Jesus did. It's not a whole lot of conversations. It's not a lot of teaching. John's the opposite, by the way. If you want to know what Jesus said, read John. Because John's a whole lot of conversation. It's a much more slow-paced. Uh, but Mark is pop, pop, pop. Mark doesn't get into the details. He just says, look, he called all these 12 people to be with him. But he tells us why. He says, he appointed 12 that they might be with him. Here's what blows my mind. He didn't stop at 12. He's still calling disciples today that they might be with him. When the Holy Spirit first stirred on your heart, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that you might be his follower, that you might give your life and receive salvation from him, what was he doing? He was stirring on you that you might be with him. He would be his disciple. The first reason why we choose to be disciples, the first thing that comes from discipleship is that we might be with God. Now at City Church, we believe that the Bible has ordained for us four pathways into God's presence. That there's four different ways that God teaches, here's how you can be with me. Here's ways that you can access my presence in a tangible way, in a more intense way. Obviously, we believe as, as Christians, the Holy Spirit already lives in us, so his presence is already with us. But there's an intensification that happens when we do these four things. And these things are going to spell out an acrostic for grow, because we believe every time we get in God's presence, we grow. So here's the way to get in God's presence. I'm just going to summarize this very, very quickly. The first one is this, gather with other believers. Jesus says, when two or more are gathered together, I'll be right there with them, right? So guess what? Through quarantine, through COVID, sometimes it's felt like we only had two, right? Sometimes this room has been a little more empty than others. Sometimes we've had to worship even on the other end of the video camera, and we've been in the living room. But he says, if two or more are gathered in my name, in other words, not just two Christians in a room, but gathered around Jesus, gathered around his purpose, gathered around glorifying him. When two or more are there, he says, I'm going to be right there with you. My presence is going to show up. And so when we do this thing we're doing this morning, God is showing up. We're going to grow. The second way is reading the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God breathed. When I open up the word of God, what happens? God starts breathing fresh air into my life. You ever needed fresh air? Ever felt like, man, you're just, you're just stuck, you're just suffocating? Man, it's just stagnancy all around. I know I felt like that the last 12 months. But what happens when I open the word of God is he starts breathing fresh life. He's, he's breathing new encouragement. He starts breathing new ideas. He starts breathing his presence into us. So when I open his word, I get in his presence. Thirdly, we offer up prayers. Bible says in the book of Hebrews that because of the salvation that we have, we can boldly go before the throne of grace to receive mercy and, and find grace to help us in times of need. And so I can go before God's presence just by, by simply coming before God, just speaking his name, Father God. God, I need your help right now. God, I need your presence in my life. God, I need you to show up at at work. I, I need to see you at work in the life of my kid. Whatever the situation is, we can invite him in. He says we can come boldly, not because we're so good, because he's so good. Man, because we wear the name of Jesus, because we're marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit, we've been given rights to come before the throne of the Almighty. That's an amazing thing. Lastly is worshiping the king. 
The Bible says that God actually inhabits the praises of his people. That when God's people praise, there's, there's a habitation of the presence and the manifestation of God that shows up. So man, when we worship him, God's there, right? So these are the four pathways into God's presence. Now I gotta take just a second and brag on my son to you. I hope that's okay. My son Judah is six years old. Uh, and yesterday, my daughter Alexa turned five. And so we had Alexa day yesterday. We went ice skating and we, uh, we got our ears pierced and we had cake and presents and all this stuff. And so at the end of the day, uh, I was praying with them as I put them to bed. And I really focused on Alexa in my prayer, and I really focused a little more in depth than I do, because it's her birthday, right? And so I'm praying God's purposes over her and, and his future and his calling over her life, and I referenced the meaning of her name. Her name means defender of mankind. And we really believe that that, that name carries a destiny, that man that God's called her to, to look out for the lost and the hurting and the needy that she would represent them. And so I'm, I'm praying over my daughter that she would walk in everything that God has for her, and then we end the prayer, and I tell my kids goodnight, and my son pops up, and, and he has to turn it and make it about him because he's like his dad, right? Uh, and, and so he says, Dad, guess what? And I said, what, buddy? He said, tomorrow I get to do my name. I said, what do you mean, bud? Well, he said, Judah means praise, and tomorrow we're going to City Church, and I'm going to praise. He said, so Sundays are really special to me because I get to do my name. That's a dad win right there. Right? Man, there, there, there's a lot of dad failures. There's a lot of ways that I miss it. But man, that was a parenting win for us last night. My kid's grabbing a hold of identity. He's grabbing a hold of his purpose. He says, I get to go to church and I get to praise because that's who I'm made to be. Well, I got news for you, church. That's who all of us are made to be. Yes, his name might mean praise and your name might mean something else, but all of us are called to praise and lift up the God who died in our place. And when that happens, he shows up. So the first thing that happens, the first aspect of discipleship is being with God. The second aspect of discipleship is following Jesus, is becoming like Jesus. This is probably the one that we associate with the most, right? This is what we understand of discipleship, that, man, I'm supposed to be like him. I'm a Christian. Christian means literally little Christ, so I'm his representative, his ambassador, wherever I go. So I'm supposed to be like Jesus. Again, the call is to get in that mindset, to, ask, to attain the mind of Christ. Matthew 10.25 says this. Jesus says, it's enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. What am I supposed to be like? I'm supposed to be like Jesus. What is my calling in life? What is my purpose in life? My purpose in life is to be like Jesus. Now, inside of that purpose, God may have very specific calls on each of us, and he may send one over here and call one to do this and one to do it this way, but all of us, our calling is to be like Jesus. Luke 6.40 puts it this way. Jesus says, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. You fully trained yet? I'm not. There are aspects of my life that fall very short of who Jesus is. And we can look at that one of two ways. We can look at that condemning. We can look at that with shame. We, we can look at that with frustration, and sometimes I do. But I don't think that's how God looks at that. What I believe God wants us to do is to look at that gap between where I am and who Jesus is, and this is the gap of potential. What this means is God's still got this much to do in my life. 
And that should be exciting. God's still got more he wants to do in me. God's got more change he wants to make in me. God's got more things he wants to teach me. And so for some of us, that may be a bigger gap. For some of us, it may be smaller. But for all of us, we're not there yet, right? None of us are fully trained yet. None of us are fully like Jesus. We're not going to be fully like Jesus on this side of heaven. But we shouldn't be content to stay where we're at. We should look at that gap and say, I got work to do. In fact, you know the word disciple comes from the same root word as the word discipline. And the word discipline means work, right? So what does it mean to be a disciple? It means there's work to do. Now let me be clear. That work to do is not the work of earning my way into heaven. I can never earn my way into heaven. I can never do enough or become like Jesus enough, do enough good things, bless enough people, get rid of enough sin. I can never do anything enough to get into heaven. The only way I can get into heaven is by receiving the sacrifice of Jesus for my sins. So when I say work, please don't think this has anything to do with you making it into heaven because it doesn't. That's not what this is about. What it is, is in response to Jesus' sacrifice for my sin, in response to what he's done for me, now he's called me to discipleship, and that means I got some work to do. That means that there's some things that aren't right in my life that he wants to get out. There's some unrighteousness and some unholiness he wants to work out, and there's some lack of Christ-likeness. There's some lack of love that he wants to get in, right? He wants to build the things that are in Jesus in me. And so the second characteristic of discipleship is becoming like Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is someone who embraces the life of Jesus, embraces the teaching of Jesus, and who strives to be like Jesus in every aspect of life. Number three, following Jesus is doing what Jesus did. This is the one that doesn't make sense. The first two I think we can get. First two, we could wrap our heads around a little bit more conveniently. But the third one is so mind-blowing. And yet, this is what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 12. We believe this conversation with his disciples was actually at the Last Supper. This is his last night before Jesus takes his last breath. Last week, we, we took communion together. And we celebrated the death of Jesus for us. Well, this is in that same conversation where Jesus institutes communion. And as he's getting ready to go to the cross, as he's getting ready to end his earthly ministry and return to the Father, this is what he tells them. He says, very truly I tell you in John 14, 12, he said, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. That's mind-blowing, right? If you believe in Jesus, you're going to do the works that he's done, but there's not a period there. There's a comma. And he just raises the bar and makes it even more crazy. And he says, and they will do even greater things than these. You know, sometimes I don't have faith for greater things. Sometimes I'm like, if I could just get a tenth of what Jesus did, that would be enough. That would be amazing if I could just walk in that. But Jesus looks at his disciples, at his followers, and he says, you're going to do greater things than I've done. He says, because I'm going to the Father. In other words, he says, the job isn't done when I leave. The job's just getting started. And there's a world who needs me. There's a world who needs my power. There's a world who needs my healing. There's a world who needs my love. There's a world who needs to see me represented, and I'm entrusting that responsibility to my disciples, to my followers. I'm giving it to you. He says, you'll do even greater things than me. John 20, verse 21, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, the difference between John 14 and John 20 There's one thing significant that happens in between. Jesus dies and raises again. 
And so in John 14, he's telling them what's going to happen, the ministry they're going to have after his death and resurrection. In John 20, he's getting ready to send them out because it has happened. In fact, just before he says, peace be with you, he breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And now he says, this is the Father has sent me. I am sending you. In the same way that God sent Jesus to the world, now God's sending Lizzie to the world. Now God's sending Emma to the world. Now God's sending David to the world. I think if Jesus could stand in front of us today and look at you, he would say, I'm sending you. I've got a mission. I've got a purpose. And that purpose is to do even greater things than Jesus did. Now here's the reality. We don't see a lot of this in American Christianity, right? Why is this one hard to wrap our brains around? Because we don't see anybody walking in the things that Jesus did, let alone beyond the things that Jesus did. So why is that? Did Jesus only mean that for the disciples at that day and age? I don't think that's the case. Why is that? Did Jesus not literally mean it? Was he talking about something else? I don't think that's the case. Here's why I believe we don't see number three. Because in modern Christianity, we're really bad at number one and number two. I believe if we would embrace the presence of God on a consistent basis, I believe if we would embrace being like Jesus on a consistent basis, if we would get the junk out of our lives, if we would really go to war with sin, if we would really strive for holiness and purity, if we would really ask Jesus, make me like you so I can love others the way you do. Let me walk in your generosity to my community. Let me serve the way that you served. If we really did number one and number two of being a disciple of Jesus, I think number three would just happen. And I think our world needs number three. I think our generation needs the power of God to show up. I think your neighbors need the healing of Jesus in their life. In fact, I'm doing a funeral this afternoon. Some people at that funeral who need the healing that only the Holy Spirit can provide, right? And all of us encounter people in in different situations, in different aspects, who have all kinds of needs. And I believe the same God who responded to those needs 2,000 years ago wants to respond to them today. In fact, when Jesus was doing ministry, he said this crazy thing so many times. He would heal somebody. He would move mightily in a family. He would do something amazing. And then he'd tell people, don't tell nobody. You ever read that? And you're like, why? Why are you telling people not to talk about this, Jesus? Because Jesus didn't come to bring glory to himself. He came to bring glory to his Father. So he was doing those miracles not so the world could know that he's Jesus. He was doing those miracles because he loves hurting people. And he loves stepping in. And he loves meeting needs. He loves bringing healing. He loves doing what only he can do. And then he looks at us and he says, come follow me. I'm going to send you out. In fact, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And you're going to go out and you're going to do even greater things than I did. In our generation, we fall so short of doing greater things than Jesus. Because we fall so short of taking advantage of the invitation of the all-consuming God who says, come be with me. Spend some time in my presence. We fall so short of following Jesus' example and becoming like him. And because of that, we miss out on the power of God. Here at City Church, we have a vision, uh, a two-part vision. We have a vision to look like heaven, and we have a vision to look like Jesus. And part of that vision to look like Jesus, we've got seven characteristics of Jesus that we believe he's calling us specifically to pursue and, 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 and to evidence to the world. 
And one of them is this. Jesus is powerful. You read through the Gospels, everywhere Jesus goes, stuff's happening. Lives are being changed, right? Like he doesn't even have to be intending for a specific encounter. And somebody bumps into him and somebody touches the hem of his garment. And and, and somebody comes and says, hey, my kid's demon-possessed. And everywhere he goes, stuff starts changing. Stuff starts happening. And then he looks at me. He says, I'm sending you just like my father sent me. He says, I'm sending you and you're going to do even greater things than I did. And he looks at you and he says the same thing. So we have a choice in our generation, church. We can just do Christianity the way we've always done it. We can settle to go through the motions of Sunday morning and maybe Wednesday or maybe being part of a small group sometimes. We can just kind of make our way through and we're going to go to heaven and we're going to spend eternity with God. And for some of us, maybe that's enough. But the Bible prophesies that there will be a generation that rises up one day that takes Jesus at his word. There's going to be a generation in the end times that actually walks in the power of God. There's going to be a generation that actually lives out all this stuff we read about 2,000 years ago. And my question is, why not us? Why are we going to make that fall on our kids or our grandkids or our great, great, great grandkids? Why not be the ones who rise up and say, yes, God, I value your presence. I, I, I take advantage of the invitation that you've given me to get in your presence through worship, through prayer, through reading the Bible, through getting with other believers. God, I'm going to do those things. Yes, I take the invitation to be like Jesus, and I know I'm going to fall short and I'm going to miss it. But Jesus, I'm going to think through what would you do in this situation and how would you speak to this hurting person and and what would you say to this situation I'm going to take that up and if we do those things I think the power of God will show up I really do church believe it with all my heart would you join me on that journey can we do that together would you stand with me as we get ready to pray I'm going to ask you this I'm going to ask you maybe a little different today but 